Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through the Lawyerist Lab and Accelerator. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast host. Hi, I'm Aaron Street. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 318 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. In today's episode, Laura's talking with Josh Linkner about unlocking creativity in your work. Today's podcast is brought to you by Clio, Postali, ESQ.marketing, Cosmolex, and Text Expander. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So, Aaron, as many people know, you sit in the visionary role for Lawyerist, and I sit in the integrator role. And I thought maybe it'd be interesting for us to unpack that a little bit, and especially the idea of visionary, because I think a lot of lawyers probably don't spend enough time with their visionary hat on. Do we need to have you explain what a visionary (laughs) and an integrator are for those who don't listen to every episode and follow along each week with our banter about business management systems? Yes, fair. It's, It's really simple. The visionary thinks of the big ideas. The integrator makes it all happen. Most people probably understand integrator. They they might not have heard that term, but you know that there's someone in the business that has to mind the details and manage them and make sure that all the things are happening for the business to run. I think the visionary role is more interesting and maybe forgotten because we don't often sit around and think, oh, let me go be a visionary today. So what does that look like for you? Yeah, it's hard for me to paint a picture of like, Aaron, what do you do every day to think about the future and strategy and things? Because the answer is I just do things and then ideas come to me or I work on a project and put pieces together. It isn't as though there's some practiced, trainable skill set around how do you foresee that virtual reality goggles are going to have impacts in the courtroom because I don't think like that or about that at all unless someone prompts me to specifically address that question. Instead, it's I think about the business all the time. I'm constantly working on different parts of the business, mostly pulled away from kind of day-to-day necessary task functions. And instead, I'll be doing some finance strategy one day and some product strategy the next day and having a business development conversation with a vendor or something a different day and making the space to put pieces together to connect dots between things and pursuing things like building product development roadmaps for the next three years where I'm forced to think about where are we trying to take this thing and what does it look like to get there six months from now, and then a year from now, and then 18 months from now. But it isn't as though that stuff all just comes to me because I'm some brilliant futurist who can foresee the future. It's practice, but it is also intuition. I don't think my way there in the sense of just rationalizing my way that you give me a topic and I can get there. Uh, it's, It's dot connecting. But I think you said something important that we should probably unpack, which you talked about creating the space for this type of thinking. And I think as lawyers and as business owners are, you know, running our firms, we often think about, oh, we need focus time to get all the tasks done. 
And when you and I were discussing this, you told me something really interesting that was like, no, you actually need unfocused time too. And so what does that mean? Yeah. So I think most of the lawyers we talk to, especially before they've joined our Lawyerist Lab program, come to us in some state of overwhelm. And frequently that overwhelm is nonstop distractions from casework and inbound emails and tasks to do and office management stuff and people coming to their office door or at least pre-remote work office door. And that frequently they come to us inquiring about lab and saying, I don't know how I have time to step back and think about my business or dive in and write down my vision for the firm because I'm so overwhelmed. I don't know where I would get the hours in the day to do that. And so often the first thing we do with a prospective member of Lawyerist Lab is help them think through some of the priorities of things on their calendar in order to carve out an hour or two a day or even an hour or two a week and say, no distractions during this time. This is the time you're going to work on your business. This is the time where you're going to start drafting your formal org chart that has been floating around in your head for years and years, but now you need it on paper. And so the first thing we often do with overwhelmed labsters is help them build in some focus time in their day. So they say, for this two hours on Wednesday, no distractions, no meetings, don't look at email, work on getting the org chart built. And that can be a really effective way to finally have the space to do hard, complex work that distractions always pull you away from. I'm suggesting there's an additional level, which is focus time is really, really good for getting a big, complicated, hairy project done, whether that's writing a brief or building your org chart. There's also eventually the need to carve out similar blocks of time on your calendar that may still be listed as focus time, but aren't for the purposes of carve out the distractions in order to dig into a thing that is difficult, but instead to put your feet up on the desk. And it's so challenging, especially if you're in a state of overwhelm because there are a hundred priorities going on to give yourself the luxury of putting your feet back up on the desk, leaning back, taking a breath and giving your brain the space to make some of those connections that only happen when you have quiet. And it's why people have such creative, amazing ideas in the shower. And the shower is this famous place for like, oh my God, I came up with the idea in the shower. It's because you finally slowed down and given yourself that space. And formally carving some of that out into your day is one way to start seeing the future, which is not that you're psychic clairvoyant. It's those intuitions and dot connecting aren't a thing you can force. They are only a thing that gentle deductions from previous things can ever uncover. I love that. I was just on with a labster before this and and he was telling me he felt guilty because he spent the afternoon yesterday because we're having some nice weather on a long leisurely bike ride. And he was like, and part of the reason he felt guilty was not just being away from the office, but he had a he had a sense that everything was okay and that the business was still running while, you know, he was on this bike ride and that was a new feeling for him. And he was worried like, is it all going to collapse? I assured him it wasn't. And I was like, actually, part of your job 
is to take walks and go on bike rides and give yourself this unfocused space because that's when those big ideas about how you could improve your business or do things better will hit you. Yeah. And the one kind of nuanced tip I would offer is also distinguishing distinguishing the focused time from unfocused time, but also distinguishing this concept of unfocused time from, say, hashtag self-care time, which is this isn't meant to replace your meditation time or your exercise time. Yeah. It is still for the purpose of working on your business. So it isn't that you put your feet up on the desk and dream about the ocean. It's that you put your feet up on the desk and give yourself some prompts of, here are the three thorny business things I've been thinking about. I'm not going to try and reason my way to the answer. I'm going to give my brain the space to subconsciously start putting the pieces together that I've been sitting on for a long time and have those intuitive epiphanies, but still deliberately prompted about work strategy, which is different than I need to go out on a bike ride and clear my head. Still do that. This is not that, although you could also prompt yourself, I'm going to go clear my head and see if I can think about how I should be approaching this thorny hiring decision. Yeah, great advice. I think everyone, if you don't have some unfocused time, block some out on your calendar and see what comes up for you. And so now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Joshua from Clio and then Laura's conversation with Josh Linkner. Hey, y'all. Zach Glazer here, the legal tech advisor at Lawyerist. And today I'm joined by Joshua Lennon, the lawyer in residence at Clio. We're talking about the release of their legal trends for solo law firms report. Joshua, thank you for joining me today. Zach, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, as I said, you guys just released the Legal Trends for Solo Law Firms report. Uh, What should solo lawyers know about that report? First of all, all lawyers should know about the Legal Trends report. It's Clio's annual report using contributed user data, a very unique data set that exists nowhere else in the world, as well as extensive surveys of lawyers, law firms, and legal consumers, including clients, on where the practice of law is going. We've taken a special subset of that data and put it into the Legal Trends for Solo Law Firms report. This is something new that we've never released before. We think that 2020 was a difficult year for all law firms, but was especially hard on solo law firms who saw greater losses in revenues than firms of any sizes. What's interesting, though, is we also saw in our data a subset of solo law firms that were able to mitigate and recover rapidly, actually much more so than any law firm of any size. And what made the difference was that they were tech-enabled, and that enabled them to earn on average $50,000 more than any other firm per lawyer. It's, it's just a remarkable stat. What have you seen in terms of how law firms have been successful in adapting to the remote work? The adoption of cloud technology is pretty much a given at this point. Uh, law firms of all sizes have turned to the cloud to help navigate work from home orders, clients that are high risk to the pandemic. And so we've seen that over 80% of law firms are set up to meet with clients virtually. The uh, adoption of video conferencing and e-signatures is almost universal at this point. And a lot of this change has been driven by necessity. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is firms that had those tools already, while they suffered some down months, Uh, were actually able to come back and improve upon their previous year's revenues, whereas a lot of other firms are still just catching up. Why is this research so important to solo law firms right now? Well, I don't think we're out of the woods yet. And solo law firms 
have always kind of been on the knife's edge, to be perfectly honest, even before the pandemic, right? There's nobody to rely upon but themselves Mm -hmm. and potentially a line of credit. So as hard as 2020 was, 2021 still has the potential to be a difficult year. And so we're really eager to to show what worked Mm. for firms throughout the past year's difficulties to prepare more firms for any future disruption ahead, where you want them to be agile no matter the circumstances. And so so based on the research in the report, how should solo lawyers be thinking about the future of their practice in 2021 and and obviously beyond 2021? If it does anything, it's, it's to prepare for the unexpected and to build a law firm that is resilient. So even if something like a pandemic comes along, you have the capacity to keep working and providing for your clients. We specifically mentioned three different tools within this report that have had a huge impact on solo law firms. That is electronic payments, client portals, and that is client intake or a CRM system. Use of those three tools has been crucial in helping solo law firms excel no matter the scenario in their locale. And we believe these tools will continue to help them excel even if the pandemic ends and the economy opens up or if we have to struggle for a couple more months. These are tools that you know we almost don't want to go away. We should be using already. Like the report kind of said, people that were already using this didn't really miss a beat too much. Yeah, yeah. In 2019, they were earning tens of thousands of dollars more per lawyer than any other law firm. And firms that already had those tools actually just saw enormous growth in their revenue because they had these tools on hand. And so we see that other firms had to jump to them later in the pandemic. And that was a misstep and it hurt them. But now they can be prepared for 2021. And that's what we're discussing is what types of steps should solo law firms be taken? What practice areas were hardest hit? Mm -hmm. What types of technology do we think are the most efficient in helping the law firms automate and recover different types of revenue sources? So attorneys who are looking to dig into 2021 and beyond would really get a lot of information from this. This would help them position themselves um, nicely for the future. Absolutely. Uh, Especially solo law firms will derive a lot of information that's particular to their unique struggles from this report. Mm -hmm. But every legal trends report has, I believe, a lot of very useful information on technology, on best business practices, on client expectations. And so if you are reading any legal trends report, you're going to benefit. And if you're reading the solo one, you're going to get that unique insight that I was talking about. Well, Joshua, thank you for joining us. I'm certainly excited to dive into those results, as I'm sure others are. And listeners can read the report by going to www.clio.com forward slash LTR. Thanks again for, for your time, Joshua. Thank you, Zach. Hi, I'm Josh Linkner, a five-time tech entrepreneur, New York Times bestselling author, venture capital investor, jazz guitarist, and delighted to be joining you here today. Hey, thanks for coming on the show. I love when people have a varied background and kind of acknowledge that they are multi-passionate people and multi-passionate entrepreneurs. So I know that you've written books in the past. Can you tell me a little bit about some of your work that led up to the book that you're about to release in 2021? Sure. So I started my career as a jazz guitarist uh, 30 years ago, 
And I, I just am in love with human creativity. As you know, jazz is a very improvisational art form. And as I've then entered the business world and started and built and sold tech companies, um, my, my little superpower, if you will, was, was creativity. And what I learned to this, uh, over, over time is that it's not just my superpower, it's yours and all the folks that are listening today in their law firms. In other words, as human beings, we have huge reservoirs of dormant creative capacity. And so the book that is coming out, Big Little Breakthroughs, is all about helping everyday people become everyday innovators, unleashing this dormant creative capacity to perform better at work and, and ultimately to make the world a better place. So it sounds like you would make the argument that everyone has creativity in them. I know sometimes we can get told as students when you're younger, oh, well, that person is especially creative and maybe that's just not a skill that you have. Is that sort of the, the premise behind this, that all of us have access to creativity, but that it is potentially laying dormant? Yeah, 100% right. And in fact, it's not just my opinion. The research bears this out, that there's no question whatsoever. As human beings, we are hardwired to be creative. That's our natural state. And you know that it's such a tragedy because we misjudge creativity. Um, for example, I play jazz guitar. You think that's pretty creative, but if you saw me draw, I can't even draw a stick figure. So a teacher would look at my drawing and say, "You're you're not creative at all." And so each of us, my point is, can express creativity in our own ways. So an attorney listening today, maybe your creative outlet isn't uh, painting on canvas or doing interpretive dance or doing spoken word poetry. Maybe your creativity is convincing a jury or making a legal brief that's really compelling. So my only point is that each of us has huge amounts of creative capacity, but we can express it in our own ways. I love that. So how do we know if we have that dormant creativity and what is the next step to starting to unlock that? Well, if I may submit to the jury that we all have that capacity. We're hardwired that way. Our brain science is that way, et cetera. The real challenge is how do we dust off the cobwebs and how do we remove the barriers? And, and the biggest suggestion that I have is to think small. In fact, the whole premise of Big Little Breakthroughs is that let's redefine what innovation and creativity is all about. If the bar is so high that innovation only counts if it's a billion dollar idea, none of us are gonna do it, it's too risky. But let's think about creativity instead as a small daily act, little micro innovations. That could be how you greet a, a client when they walk into a deposition. It could be how you uh, stand up and, and, and greet the judge in a hearing. And so the point is that we can all look for little teeny ways to inject daily creativity. And what that does actually is two things. First of all, we practice. Like the more you practice anything, the better you get at it. And then ultimately that will unlock bigger stuff. Furthermore, those little teeny creative acts actually add up to big stuff. So it's funny, like we think of creativity masters like uh, Da Vinci, but the Mona Lisa wasn't Da Vinci's first painting. Da Vinci first had to learn to paint. He had to paint every day. He had to paint a bunch of bad paintings before he could come up with a good one. And that's exactly how we should think about our own creativity when we're scaling our law firms. I love that. So how do you suggest starting to get out of your own way once you've begun to unlock some of these minor steps in creativity? So you've tested out some things in your day-to-day -day life. Where does that lead you? you as sort of a next step. I know for a lot of people, they'll feel like, well, I'm already pressed for time and my time should really be spent on growing my business. And of course, there's a really important argument here around creativity, helping you unlock things across the board in your personal life and business. But it is often hard to get out of our own way in perceiving what is most important. So beyond those small acts, what do we do next to continue that momentum? Well, so the book that I just wrote, Big Little Breakthroughs, I invested over a thousand hours of research studying innovators of all shapes and sizes in different industries around the world. And the book actually lays out a very systematic approach to build creative capacity individually and for, for teams. It explores the mindsets of creativity and it even gets into very tactical things. So that would be obviously you know one approach, but I think that it's so important to think about why even before we get to how. 
the legal field is competitive, whether we're competing for clients or competing for a jury verdict, it's a competitive field. And I know this because my mom, uh, she passed now, but she was a, uh, an individual attorney and ran a solo practice. And I know it's a difficult competitive industry that's only increasing in, in difficulty. So when you say, how do we stand out from the competitive set? How do we win a disproportionate share of the rewards? And the most other advantages have already become commoditized. You can't win by having access to more information. There's nexus for that. You can't win by, you know, dressing better. Like, so, so when you get down to it, what can you do to gain competitive advantage and elevate your practice? And I think creativity ultimately went from, and maybe in the past optional, but today is mission critical. So if we all agree that it's important, then we have to allocate at least some time and resources to developing those skills, both internally and among our teams. By the way, it doesn't have to be a lot. I, I, just like anything, if you practice guitar for 15 minutes a day, after a few months, you could play a couple tunes. And same thing, you don't have to devote, you know, billions of dollars or, or huge amounts of time. Spend 10 minutes a day developing your creative skills with some of the, the tools that I share. And pretty soon you'll start to see a lot more creativity around you. Those are great tips for getting started. It seems like there's a common thread because one of your previous books about this concept of reinvention pulls in that idea of tiny ripples that can have big impacts across an industry. Can you talk a little bit more about this concept in general? Because it seems to be found throughout your work and, and really important to the kinds of things you're researching and writing about. Yeah, thank you. I, I really feel this personal mission to help people become more creative. And I, I get frustrated because, again, we think it only counts if it's giant. We think only some people are creative. We think we don't have enough time or resources or money to be creative. And I, I want to democratize it and make creativity accessible for every one of us. And the ripple concept is exactly right. A, a teeny pebble into a still lake is very easy. My, my four-year-old uh, daughter Talia could toss it in no problem, but it could radiate uh, impact far beyond that initial point of impact. And that's exactly how creativity is. The littlest acts of creativity can add up to big things. And especially when you have binary outcomes, you win or lose a case, you know, that, that's where creativity can really matter. Or even if you win or lose a client or, or hiring a new attorney to join your practice. Um, the other thing I'll say while we're talking about it is, is the art form of pointillism is a good example. So I don't know if you're up on art, but but pointillism is basically, if you just take a primary color with a single dot and stick it on the page, again, my daughter Talia could do that all day, every day. The individual act is actually pretty easy. It's the assembly of lots of small little points of color that ultimately cascade into something much more meaningful and, and powerful. So the individual act of creativity doesn't have to be envisioning this masterpiece of being a perfectionist. It's just getting those little dots going and before long, they add up to big stuff. Oh, that's an excellent way to think about it. And I love the comparison to art. So I'm curious, you know, you're an investor, so you've seen a lot of different people who are trying to put their best foot forward, trying to present something cohesively. Have you found any kinds of personality traits that are more likely for people to be successful when communicating ideas to others? Yeah, that's, uh, I'm glad you asked that. So I've sat through over 3000 entrepreneurial pitches. These are people like <laughs> on Shark Tank that, you know, want, want an, uh, an investment. And what I've found is that the, the ideal entrepreneur is the opposite of what you might think. So you might think that you have to be like this giant, larger than life, fill the room, Steve Jobs, charisma kind of person. And those people actually tend to be all sizzle and no steak, as the saying goes. What I look for actually is, is somebody who is more open-minded, someone who has humility, someone who's coachable, someone who's a good listener. And so I think we've all now developed in our society such good BS detectors that being too salesy actually can undermine one's act of persuasion. It's showing humility, showing vulnerability, showing compassion. These are the things that actually makes your case more attractive. And to a degree, we're always persuading, whether we're persuading a judge or a jury, whether we're persuading a new colleague to join our firm, whether we're persuading a new client that, that we're the right choice. 
And so I think that that we can take a creative approach. The other thing I just quickly say on it is that, especially I, I've observed in the in the legal practice, people all kind of look and sound the same. It's, it's it's and I don't mean this disrespectfully. Again, my mom was an attorney, but it's sort of like the sea of sameness. I mean, how many commercials can we see with a person with the Windsor knot sitting behind a mahogany desk and saying, "I'm going to fight for your rights"? You know, I, I, we roll our eyes at it. It's cliche. So I would, with great respect, suggest that people who are trying to grow their practices think about the opposite. In the book, I call it the judo flip, which is a creative technique, which is saying, okay, if everybody else does this, what would the polar opposite be? And so if, if everybody wears the Windsor knot and has a mahogany desk, like what if you showed up in a black turtleneck? So, you know, you might alienate a small percentage of people. On the other hand, a larger percentage of people might say, wow, you really stand out. You're really different. And so I think what we should do to, to market and grow our practices is focus on the things that make us unique and different as opposed to those things that make us the same. I think that holds a lot of weight, especially when I think about the co-founder of Lawyerist, Sam Glover, who was the voice of this podcast for a very long time, found a way to harness his unique approach, was very much sort of a punk rocker practicing law and debt collection practices and trying to protect people who were you know, being targeted by those kinds of companies. And I think that, of course, that's not going to resonate with everyone, but it can really resonate with your specific audience. And I'm seeing a lot of the lawyers in our lab community do the same thing. They're really tapping into what makes me different. You know, we have a labster who we recently featured in a case study that, you know, had been practicing in family law for a long time and really felt like he wanted to focus on prenups. He didn't want to be in the controversial adversarial aspects of family law and rebranded with that focus that's pulling in exactly those right clients. So we'll be right back after we take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Support for today's episode comes from Postali a full-service legal marketing agency for law firms. The attorney-client relationship is the cornerstone of the legal profession. Just like you put the client's needs first, you deserve a marketing agency that does the same to grow your practice. Postali works with law firms nationwide and is the only full-service legal marketing agency that can call itself a marketing fiduciary. That's because, at Postali, the impressive results they achieve come from always putting your law firm's financial interests above their own. Imagine a relationship with a legal marketing agency that treats your investment as they would their own dollars, without hollow SEO promises, no commission-based upselling, and who won't work with your competitors. Postali is the marketing agency for legal professionals looking for 100% transparency and genuine guidance from a real marketing partner. To learn more about the benefits of working with a marketing fiduciary, visit postali.com forward slash lawyerist. Contact them for a free consult and mention this podcast. Support for today's episode comes from ESQ Marketing, an agency that believes in affordable and reliable marketing for solo practitioners and small law firms. With ESQ Marketing, you'll work with experts in legal marketing. All of their intense focus is on helping attorneys generate more clients and cases from the internet. They don't work with anyone else. You'll breathe easy with low-risk, month-to-month contracts, and there are no long-term commitments. ESQ Marketing earns the right to work for your firm each and every month. Best of all, you'll get direct access to the person working on your account, no account managers to deal with, and no lost-in-translation with your requests. To see if you're a fit, visit esq.marketing forward slash lawyerist to get started. Today's challenging and fluctuating business climate requires law firms to be flexible in the way they run their practice. Whether you're working remotely, in the office, or a combination of the two, you need to be able to work effectively and efficiently on the go at any time. 
That's why Cosmolex offers a cloud-based total law practice management system with built-in compliance for trust and general legal accounting. With Cosmolex, you get everything you need to run your practice in one solution with 24-7 mobile access that's both secure and easy to use. You'll be able to stay on top of all your billable activities no matter where you are, and your clients will love the direct and secure communication in the client portal. The Cosmolex migration team will ensure all your data is moved into your new system safely and securely so your firm can be up and running in no time. To learn more about Cosmolex Total Law Practice Management System, visit cosmolex.com forward slash lawyerist. Support for today's episode comes from Text Expander. Get ahead of your productivity for the new year with easy to use cross-platform snippets. Text Expander makes quick work of mundane, repetitive tasks so you can focus on what matters most. Say goodbye to needless text entry, spelling and grammar errors, and inconsistency in your messaging. When you use Text Expander, you can say the same thing, the right thing, in just a few keystrokes. Text Expander can be used in any platform, any app, anywhere you type. These versatile snippets are better than copy and paste, and they're better than scripts and templates. They work across devices and platforms to allow you to maximize your efficiency while still customizing and personalizing your messages. So take your time back in the new year and increase your productivity with Text Expander. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Just visit textexpander.com forward slash podcast to learn more. Thanks for hanging with us. There's another idea in your book that really jumped out to me, which is this idea of innovate or your competition is going to. Now, we talk about this a lot in the lawyerist book, The Small Firm Roadmap, of needing to continue pushing yourself, and we can't afford to practice law the way it's been done for 200 years. I'd love to hear from your perspective. Why is this so important in business today? You know, if we lived in a vacuum, in a static environment where everything was never changing, you know, great, don't bother changing as well. But but we sort of live in the opposite. I mean, today we're living in a rate of change like none other in history. And so, you know, our, our, our market position is relative to the, to the rate of change of others. Uh, simply put, if we stand still, we're going to run into problems. In my new book, I talk about what I call the Frogger principle. I don't know if you remember the video game Frogger, but like there's this little frog and you got to cross the river. Thing is, the frog can't swim. So it has to jump onto solid surfaces that are moving. So you jump on the back of like a lily pad and a, and a log and an alligator to make your way. But the thing is that because those things are moving, if you jump onto solid surface and just stand still, you fall into the raging river and die. And, and, and not to be too over you know, dramatic, but I kind of think like we're living in a giant game of Frogger, that our job to a degree is to keep hopping forward. And if you land on a solid surface, you won a case, you had a great year, you, you snagged a new attorney to join your practice, that's great and let's celebrate the moment. But let, we gotta make sure we don't stand on that back of that log too long because it's moving. And it's only moving at an increasingly fast pace. So I think it's kind of our core responsibility of all of us to be in a, in a perennial state of reinvention. One of the sayings that I had for my team as I built my several companies is this, someday a company will come along and put us out of business. It might as well be us. And I would say if you're running a small practice, that's a wonderful mantra to embrace. Someday another firm will come along and make my firm obsolete and irrelevant. How about I become that firm instead of letting someone else uh, do that to me? That makes a lot of sense. And I think that one of the challenges though is it sometimes feels like the pace of change is so fast that it can almost feel exhausting to try to keep your finger on the pulse and be constantly reinventing. It sounds like there's a lot of benefit in potentially doing that. Is there a sweet spot of 
how much you need to be reinventing or how often you need to be evaluating things in your business that might need to be changed? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. You're right, because, hey, go reinvent all the time in a giant way. That's that's super scary and overwhelming <laughs> and feels risky. So uh, uh, two two suggestions there. First of all, sort of isolate and attack. So don't reinvent everything all at once. You might isolate, for example, your firm's branding. And, and, and keep everything status quo while you focus on one thing, get the benefit from that thing, and then systematically move on to the next. So if you take sort of a, a really rigorous, disciplined approach, don't try to do everything at once, just isolate one area of your firm, work on that, and, and then, then move on to the next. The other thing, though, that I would say is that in the software industry, people who win the most are in constant experimentation mode. In fact, Jeff Bezos made a quote one time, which said, uh, CEO of Amazon, that, that their, their success is specifically and directly tied to the number of experiments they run per week, per day, per month, per year. And so for, for us in our law firm, if you have an idea, the, the biggest, scariest thing is, gosh, what if I try my idea and it doesn't work out and I torpedo my practice? My suggestion is instead of thinking these all or nothing universal bets, try to come up with a prototype. In other words, can you try your idea with one client or with one jury case that's not the most important case you have on your docket. And so if, if we think of ourselves as in an experimentation mindset, where at any given point, we might be running four or five little teeny controlled experiments, fixed time, fixed money experiments, knowing full well that four out of the five won't work, that's okay. Test, get rid of the bad ones. And then when, you, when you, an experiment works, don't go crazy, just double the size of that experiment. If it works again, double the size. And so you can de-risk the creative process. You can make reinvention feel not overwhelming when you get into an experimentation and testing mindset, as opposed to like these global all or nothing changes. Is there a component of being in that experimentation mindset where you're definitely viewing it as sort of an adventure? Do you set goals at the beginning to measure what a success would look like? Because I think that's something a lot of us struggle with. We maybe think too big of, well, this will be a success if it brings in thousands and thousands of dollars or like in marketing, like if my Facebook ad converts at this particular rate, it's a great success. How do you balance that, like setting meaningful goals to be able to tell whether or not your experiment really worked, but not shooting so big where it's just unrealistic for a short-term experiment? Yeah. Again, awesome question. Thank you for asking that. So let's say you have an idea that you think you can grow your practice by 50% a year for the next 10 years. So that's like a giant idea. So you say, okay, but to do that, I have to make some pretty scary changes and invest a bunch of money. And I, I'm, I don't want to go crazy. Can I test it? So just like when we were in middle school and we ta were taught to subdivide fractions until you could go no more. <laughs> yeah. Same thing. Subdivide the idea to the point where you can get to the teeniest possible way you can test it. Like the absolute cheapest, absolute fastest way you can test it. And then you say, okay, what would the metric be? Not to be, you know, overwhelming success or not, just a metric that would encourage you to embrace further exploration. You know, does this idea merit further exploration? So if you take this giant idea that could grow your practice 50% a year and you break it down to like, hey, I'm gonna test this one thing on a Tuesday afternoon, the metric of success or failure isn't did it grow my practice 50%? It might be like, did I get someone to not throw me out of the room? Did I get someone not to wince at the idea? And so all you need to do is take small experiments, set a realistic bar that says, does this merit further exploration or should I put a bullet in the idea? That's how you're really measuring at each stage of the experimentation process. You don't have to worry, does the idea show you know, crazy massive promise? And by the way, that's exactly how drug uh, discoveries are made. So we're all very grateful that very quickly, pharmaceutical companies were able to come up with a COVID vaccine. How does that happen? Is that because someone comes up with an idea like, oh, dude, I've got an idea. Let's just go print a billion copies of this thing. They tested in the lab, knowing full well that most experiments won't work. 
They look at the data, they tweak and adapt, and, and over time, in a very deliberate and thoughtful way, they're able to get great ideas out the door quickly. We should do the exact same thing as we grow our legal practices. That's so important. It's like such a subtle mindset thing, but it's a shift that could have so many positive ripple effects across your business by not grading yourself on the success of every experiment, but on the willingness to keep trying and refining and simplifying and really figuring out what is the simplest thing I can do that's going to give me the result or the information that I know whether or not I'm going to proceed with this particular thing. So I, I like that it releases some of the pressure from from you of viewing it as a personal failure on yourself. Well, it was an experiment and you tried it and it either worked or it didn't. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you are a failure or this whole idea is a failure. It just didn't bear results that meant it was time to move on with it or even expand it a little bit more. That is exactly right. And it's funny. So uh, in the research, as I mentioned for the book, I invested over a thousand hours and I interviewed CEOs and billionaires and celebrity entrepreneurs and, and actually people in the legal profession as well. And, and what I learned is that there are some common mindsets that everyday innovators tend to embrace. The one we're talking about right now, I cover in the book, I call it open a test kitchen, which is essentially embracing that, that experimentation mindset. A couple other mindsets though, real quickly that I think would be important for, for the listeners today. One of them is start before you're ready. So innovators don't wait for permission. They don't wait for a directive. They don't wait till everything is ideal. They sort of get started and figure things out along the way. Uh, another one that I think applies here is I call it use every drop of toothpaste, <laughs> which is around being really scrappy and resourceful, especially for the solo practice owner or the smaller firms. You know, we, how do we compete with the larger firms? And sometimes we can find beauty when things are resource constrained. And the last one I'll just mention briefly is, is one called fall seven times stand eight, which is a real recognition of, of adversity and failure and setbacks along the way to discovery. It's not kumbaya, like no one likes to lose, but it's how do you learn from and how do you use creativity as a mechanism for resiliency, ultimately to learn from those failed attempts in order to discover successful ones. There's so much good information within that. I think mindset is so important in so many different aspects of how you show up as a leader, how you show up as a manager, how you show up on behalf of your clients. So it sounds like there's lots of even better material inside the book. I can't wait to read the full thing. So I've saved my most important, and I'm being sarcastic here, question for last. I know I could Google it, but I had to hear it from your perspective. So I grew up near Toledo, Ohio. What on earth is Detroit style pizza? I've never heard of Detroit style pizza. So you have to fill me in. <laughs> oh man. Now we're really getting to a passion point. You know, for me, it's like family jazz and pizza. <laughs> like what's, what's better than that? Right, right. But, um, so for those not listening, I, I, I'm a uh, guilty pizza holic. I just, you know, love pizzas, you know, of all types, by the way. But my favorite of all is Detroit style pizza. I'm from the city of Detroit. I was born here in Detroit, as were my parents and grandparents. I'm very passionate about it. And not only are we a very cool city, but we happen to make the best pizza, in my opinion. Yeah. So New York pizza is very, very thin. <laughs> Neapolitan pizza is like kind of hand-tossed and also pretty thin. Oh, very good, by the way. Yeah. Chicago pizza is very deep dish and thick. Yeah. Detroit pizza is sort of in the middle. Okay. Detroit style pizza is a deep dish pizza, quote unquote, but it's about a third the thickness of a Chicago deep dish. So it's thinner, okay. square, <laughs> thicker pizza than normal. It is absolutely the bomb. It's the perfect choice. And if you can't find a local pizza joint, which I would encourage you to do, Jets Pizza, which is from Detroit, um, sells a, a national brand. And their square pizza is Detroit style pizza, if you want to check it out. Wow. That was my burning question because I'm like, I'm familiar with a lot of things around Detroit, but I have never heard of that one. So you've added something to my bucket list to be able to try the next time <laughs> I go home and visit there. So thanks for that. Thanks for all of your insights 
highlight on this episode and we'll put links in the show notes to your books and all of that great information. So thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, it's truly my pleasure. And just real quickly, uh, I wanted to offer something to the listeners. So uh, there's a website we built, biglittlebreakthroughs.com, which is the website for the book. There's a free creativity assessment. You can sort of get a sense of where you sit right now and where to improve. But there's a whole bunch of tools that are all free, by the way. I'm not selling you anything. So if there's a toolkit that has downloads and worksheets and, I mean, summaries and all kinds of great tools that will really help you. If you go into that toolkit at biglittlebreakthroughs.com and enter the secret code lawyerist, you will get access for free. So again, I'm not selling you anything, but there's a, a treasure trove of goodies there. I really hope that it helps you, my, my dear listener, on your own creative journey. And I hope that you, like me, get passionate about helping everyday people become everyday innovators. Awesome. We'll put links to that in the show notes. Thanks again. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced by Bailey Tiller and edited by Christopher Eng. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read The Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com community lab to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by their participants are their own and not endorsed by the Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Oh, 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 oh,